This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure, once again, to invite back uh, Dr. Mary Loteo, who is with the uh, G1 Oncology Service at the Memorial Sloan Kettering um, Cancer Center. And um, the reason for this uh, podcast is a recent publication um, in the Green Journal on prophylactic negative pressure wound therapy after laparotomy for gynecologic surgery, a randomized controlled trial. Mario, good to have you. Welcome back. Oh, thanks, Pedro. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, Mario, I wanted to um, um, ask you, and uh, we have uh, lots of questions. Hopefully, we'll be able to cover uh, most of these during the uh, podcast. Um, but I wanted to start by discussing as to why you felt this was um, an important question to address in, uh, in, in our field, in gynecologic oncology. Yeah, you know, it's not a rocket, like a huge rocket science kind of question, and, you know, it's not a cancer-specific question, but it's a question that has a lot of clinical relevance to us as surgeons, and uh, we all take care of uh, women with uh, when they develop a surgical site infection. It's a pretty frustrating situation. Mm -hmm. um, the amount of uh, you know pain and discomfort they have, especially when the wound opens, the wound changes. You know the costs associated with managing the surgical site infections. Um, the potential then, which most people don't even talk about, is the long-term hernia rates that are directly related to surgical site infections of the wound at the time of primary surgery, which usually that aspect gets forgotten. So it is a, a really big clinical problem for us that we deal with on an everyday basis as surgeons. And obviously it's a problem that we're all trying to make better with the evidence brought with all the surgical site reduction bundles that are being created and implemented around the world. Yeah. And um, I mean, you, you do mention obviously, and particularly in gynecologic oncology, we've all uh, been through that. And uh, particularly the, the malnourished patients, the obese patients. So certainly in um, uh, obviously the prevalence is, is quite high. So let's start also by just, um, if you can just tell our audience as to what negative pressure wound therapy is and, and what data do we have prior to the study regarding the utility of this negative pressure wound therapy? Yeah, so many of us, I think, are familiar with uh, the wound back systems that we use when there's a wound disruption. Uh, to, instead of wound packing, at daily, you, you put the wound back system on, uh, and that can be changed every three days. And that's been around for some time with evidence that's, that suggests that's easier and facilitates recovery of disrupted laparotomy wounds. Uh, the same concept was in taking to the next uh, sort of uh, theory that, you know, if it is helpful in healing a disrupted wound, could it be helpful in preventing a wound complication by creating a sort of negative pressure or basically just a vacuuming of uh, extra fluids that are produced in the therapies if you put this on a wound uh, that you've just closed that by creating this negative pressure and sucking up of fluids and extra um, material that you would prevent wound infections uh, by doing so. So it's a modification of what we all commonly uh, know as the wound back for disrupted wounds. We use the same vacuum canister, uh, but the material has been packaged in a way that you can place it and customize it for a laparotomy wound. Great, and, and I'm glad you clarified it. So this is actually placed on a closed wound, not a wound that's been left open. Correct. So that's the problem also, which we'll get into later about all the prior publications, is that it's unclear as to how they were placed in other trials. My vision is, you know, if you leave a wound open, you're going to have a zero rate of wound separation in the future because you start off with an open wound. So I think that's really fudging the numbers a little bit that you leave your wounds open uh, and then you declare you have a zero rate of wound dehiscence. So 
Um, this really, we want to close our wounds so that we don't torture patients with uh, daily changes or wound backs and the costs associated with that. So this, it, we thought that for this would be helpful, it would be to place it on a closed laparotomy wound. And that's how it's been also being promoted by the company that makes this product. There's other products out there, but this is just specifically one product used here. Um, and also there is a cost to this. So that's why we, we felt it'd be important to address this because this is definitely more costly than placing good old fashioned gauze on the wound. Right. Absolutely. So this was a, a prospective a randomized trial. So what was the um, eligibility criteria for the study? Uh, and also what, what kind of patients did you exclude from the study? Yeah, so we wanted we wanted to keep this all to an mostly an oncologic uh, uh, cohort of patients. Uh, we feel, that, as you mentioned, these are patients that uh, have other uh, risk factors for wound complications, such as malnourishment. Um, we also wanted to uh, include the obese patients, although in reality, most obese patients nowadays are undergoing mainly basic surgery for many indications. So that pool of and cohort of patients would be much less. We wanted to also offer them. Uh, participation in this trial um, and so we uh, our eligibility was any patient undergoing uh, a laparotomy for presumed malignancy because obviously sometimes we think there's malignancy and there's not we didn't want to uh, exclude too many patients if we had a confirmed diagnosis mm -hmm. um, and then also we would allow any patients with a, uh, a BMI of 40 or higher that were undergoing uh, a laparotomy for a benign reason so those are our, our main inclusion criteria um, We obviously excluded folks who um, didn't have presumed um, malignancy at all, uh, or obviously were undergoing minimally invasive surgery. And then we, you know, we there were post randomization kind of exclusions for analysis at the end. Great. And now, if you can just then move on to a little bit about the randomization process, and and particularly a question that always comes up in these kinds of studies whether you randomize patients before surgery or after completion of your surgery? That's a great question. There's been a little Twitter action going back and forth on something like this, but, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the key to randomization is you, is that you want to balance the factors between both groups. Uh, so that the only intervention hopefully is the, the only difference hopefully is the intervention that you're assigning patients to. Um, And then you also want to eliminate as much bias as you can from both patients and surgeons. So if you randomize before you start the surgery, even though we all want to be, say that we wouldn't do this, but I think there's sort of inherent biases where maybe certain things are done if you know the patient's going to get isn't an arm that you prefer, quote unquote. So you can potentially imagine what certain things might be done to help further the reduction in surgical side infection. <laughs> So the ideal uh, time is just before you are going to do the intervention. So we randomized patients after the skin, the staples were placed. Okay. Um, an envelope was opened in the operating room uh, with the assigned sequence, and that's when the surgeons uh, were told that the, the athlete could place a gauze or a wound back. So at that point, there's really nothing else that could be done, uh, whether thoughtfully or, or implicitly to try to uh, potentially bias the results. Yeah, so at, at the point of randomization, it's done. So uh, yeah. you're just moving forward with the intervention. And, uh, right, and, so, and, oh if, and if patients had a, and if patients at that point, you know, had uh, enrolled and then their wound was felt that it needed to be open for some reason, left open, then they were, they were not, not randomized. So they were then uh, accounted for those patients that were not eligible. So we did not randomize patients in the operating room if their wound was left 
open for whatever reason. It had to be because of gross contamination or some other reason. So, so those patients ultimately were enrolled, but not randomized. Got it. And um, were were you allowing for wound uh, drain placement? We were, but uh, almost no patients have wound drains placed. It's not a common practice our institution um, to do that. And uh, three other uh, sites that participated with us, uh, part of our MSK Alliance program. So no patients really have wound backs placed that we're aware of. Okay. And um, one of the other questions also for, for those of us who are not familiar with the system, how long do you leave it on? How, when was it removed in the patients that were randomized to that group? Yeah, so, you know, this is also, you know, things, interventions and how long you keep things on sometimes are somewhat arbitrary. But the indication uh, per the packaging is to keep it on for at least two days, mm -hmm. but no longer than seven days. So our, our, our plan was that the patients, um, the wound back stayed on for two days. Uh, and then, uh, if they went home in between two to seven days, it was taken off on a day of discharge. If they were here longer than seven days, it was taken off on day seven. Okay. And Mary, just a one quick question in terms of like logistics, did, does this process interfere with like just patient mobility or uh, the patient not required to stay in bed through? No, the no, they walked around with this. It was very easy okay. for them to walk around. Okay. Um, so what was the primary outcome of the study? So that was another thing we struggled to when we were de defining this uh, up front and trying to read all the background literature on this stuff. You know, at surgical site infection is obviously a key component of what we were looking at, but there's different types of surgical site infection. You know, there's superficial, there's uh, the, the fascial, or the, you know, what's called the deep surgical site infection, and there's the organ space. So, you know, for us, placing a wound back over a closed wound, we had no idea how that would ever impact an organ space infection. So we decided not to include that, nor a, a muscle fascia-based infection, since this is a completely non-antibiotic mechanical process. So we chose to just look at essentially superficial surgical site infections, which we defined as a wound complications. And we, it was a composite of either a, an obvious wound separation, a wound infection, a wound seroma or a wound hematoma. Uh, any one of those or a combination of those would give us the, a primary composite endpoint of wound complication. Okay. And that was within uh, 30 days of surgery? Yes, within 30 days. A wound complication within 30 days. Okay. Um, and how did you get to the calculation of the sample size? Uh, if you can talk a little bit about the statistical design. Yeah, and this is always, uh, you know, we had a fellow's work on this. It was a, a great educational process for them, too, to, you know, to understand how randomized trials are, are, are developed. You really have to have a background clinical information mm -hmm. as to what your baseline rates are going to be in a non-intervention group or the control group. And then what you think your, your intervention or your experimental group, what kind of benefit they will derive that you think is clinically relevant. Um, I mean, you can do a large enough trial that you can find a 1% difference clinically, statistically significant, but that's not really clinically important. Mm -hmm. So we actually had the benefit of our own large databases here to look at our surgical site infection rates um, and wound complication rates more specifically. And we use that as our baseline rate in our control arm. And then based on what's published out there, what the company that makes this product was touting, we decided that a 50% wound complication rate reduction would be um, relevant. Mm -hmm. So we decided that in our baseline rate of complications from our databases that we had, after instituting a surgical site reduction bundle was about 10%. So mm -hmm. 
So we we said that we were expecting a 10% rate of wound complications in the control arm, which was the gauze arm, and a 50% reduction down to 5% in our interventional experimental arm of the negative pressure wound system. So because of that, we plan to have nearly 700 patients needed to be enrolled to have a power of 80% and a type 1 error of 10%. Great. So about 700 patients. So now let's get to the, uh, the results of the study. And what would you want to highlight to our audience? Well, sum it up in one, two words. It doesn't work. That's three <laughs> words. <laughs> it didn't work, at least in our cohort. So, as, you know, as, we, as, we, as simple as that, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we um, were very excited, hoping that this would work based on stuff that was out there. And, you know, you know, our folks were using it here already, and they were all saying how they liked it. So, you know, we met every month. I didn't know what the rate of wound complications was. I was blinded to that as a principal investigator. Um, so when we met monthly, I did not know what, the, what was happening in either arm, but we were just meeting to look at enrollment and things like that. You know, with nearly 700 patients having laparotomy, that's a large number of patients. And, um, you know... It was what it was. So we ultimately found that in a negative pressure wound group, the rate of wound complications was 17%, and it was 16% in a group that had just gauze placed on their on their abdomen. So entirely no difference between the two. With the two arms, yeah. And and one one obviously question that will come up is uh, the difference. In, in wound complications uh, in patients with a BMI greater than 40, I believe it was 41% versus 15% in those with a BMI less than 40. Uh, and still there was no difference in, in outcomes, uh, even in patients with a BMI greater than 40. Um, why do you think that might be the case? Well, I think just because the system doesn't work and we need to look at something else. Um, you know, we, we only had a small number of obese patients because that, I mean, that's basically the trend. Most women who are obese now typically don't have ovarian cancer because that was the main cancer that was uh, diagnosed in our, in our study. Um, mostly they, obese women usually are suffering from endometrial cancer and they're undergoing minimally basic procedures, which is obviously actually the best surgical site infection intervention is to have minimally invasive surgery. But, you know, we then we want to include women with a BMI over 40 who have laparotomies uh, with benign conditions also just so that we could at least enroll some of these patients. There's a very small number of cases, but um, even when we looked at that very small number of cases, the rate of wound, uh, wound infection in those who got the negative pressure wound system applied was 47%. Mm. It was 7 out of 15, and it was 35% in the gauze group. So both are high numbers and not statistically significant because they're probably not statistically significant, but it just shows that this isn't the intervention that's going to, that's going to alter surgical site infection or wound complications in our mobile obese patients either, either that's from looking at our data now from a purely statistical standpoint, we can't make that such a uh, definitive conclusion because this was not a trial looking at only morbidly obese patients, nor does it have enough uh, numbers to address it statistically. But the trend is actually, against using the system, at least from this very small subgroup. Yeah. And um, a, a subsequent question uh, with regards to someone related this uh, group of patients, um, smoking history, diabetes. Um, it seems like obviously as expected in a randomized trial, uh, it's uh, fairly balanced, uh, but could these have impacted the outcomes? Uh, should this be targeting just that population? 
Um, so, you know, we actually had a slight imbalance in diabetes between the group two groups, but um, we did a, an adjusted uh, multivariate adjustment for that at the end, and it still made no difference. Um, you know, the, the rate of complications in the, these diabetic patients really wasn't as important as it was the, uh, the BMI um, in, in, in these patients in terms of developing surgical site infections. So, uh, and smoking, you know, nearly half our patients had at least a prior history of smoking. Uh, there were very few current smokers, which is a good thing. Um, so we don't, and they were, we looked at various, after the, uh, some post-hoc analysis, we looked at various risks for potential wound infections. And again, those factors did not correlate with getting us a wound complication. Uh, the only things that did were, um, um, well, BMI, prior use of radiation therapy, um, blood loss, but uh, multivariate analysis, the only thing that still stood out as an independent, asso uh, independently associated with developing a wound complication was BMI. Yeah. Now, Mario, um, and again, uh, this highlights the importance of doing prospective randomized uh, studies. You, you actually noted a greater likelihood of adverse events in the uh, intervention arm than when the negative wound therapy group. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so as you can imagine, this is a you know it's a, it's it's a piece of gall, it's a piece of uh, that black foam, which is not as big as the typical uh, wound back uh, foam, but it's a smaller piece of foam that goes on with some tape, set to negative pressure, which is basically vacuuming, creating suction on the skin. So and it's on for nearly seven days in some patients. So uh, we wanted to make sure that if it was going to help, that it also didn't hurt and. What we found is that about 13% of women who had a negative pressure wound system had developed blisters on the skin from the system itself. Mm -hmm. Now, they were relatively easily managed. Some had some pain from it, but there was no long-term consequence from it either. But in, in the setting of a, a negative primary outcome or, or no difference in the primary outcome, this just adds more information to really that this may not be the way to take care of wounds in, in a post-operative setting. Yeah. So um, among some of the questions that are submitted by our um, uh, fellows in the journal, uh, this one comes from Sarah Nasser in uh, Germany. And uh, she asks, uh, are, do you have information as to what was the rate of the use of bebacizumab in either group? And could this have impacted the outcomes of the study? Yeah, you know, we didn't capture use of bebacizumab. We did capture use of prior chemotherapy. Most of these patients, uh, uh, two-thirds, did not have any chemotherapy before the surgery in either arm. And most of these patients, because uh, most of these patients are going primary debulking surgeries or primary cytoreductive surgeries for ovarian cancers. Um, so many did not even have any chemotherapy at all. Um, so we didn't know any immediate use of bevacizumab, but again, in all fairness, we didn't actually capture that data point. Um, again, with the randomization process, it would have been, uh, distributed equally between the two groups. So uh, as a how it affected the primary difference or the primary finding probably would not have been significant. Yeah. And then, Mary, you mentioned in the results uh, a meta-analysis of actually 44 clinical studies and a Cochrane review that yeah. seem to have resulted in findings supporting negative pressure wound therapy. So why do you think all of those studies found favorable results, but you did not in your study? Yeah, so the one meta-analysis includes, uh, you know, retrospective studies, uh, which, you know, I think there's value to some retrospective studies if they're done well, but there's limitations to them. So 
meta-analyzing a bunch of limited retrospective studies just gives you uh, a more limited <laughs> grouping of, of retrospective studies. So I think that's one of the problems with, with the, the meta-analysis that's mentioned. The Cochrane Review um, included randomized trials, quote-unquote, but if you pull out some of those randomized trials, you also start to realize that it's unclear whether wounds were closed or not primarily in some of those studies, you look at the numbers needed to that they enrolled in these quote-unquote randomized trials, all mostly less than 100 patients, which for us to come up with a number of nearly 700 being needed, I, I don't know how reliable the statistics were in the design of those trials when most of them randomized 100 patients at most. So yeah, I think that even the randomized trials that had been done before were limited. In addition, the randomized trials that were in the Cochrane Review, they included all types of surgeries, anywhere from colorectal surgeries um, to uh, knee vascular surgeries to <laughs> groin surgeries. So it's kind of a, a mix of different surgeries, and none actually spoke specifically to uh, patients undergoing laparotomy for cancer, right. uh, especially our group of patients that, you know, mostly ovarian cancer patients, mostly already having low albumins and other problems that would put them at greater risk for, and, and, and having to, you know, long multi-organ resection procedures. There was nothing out there that spoke specifically to this cohort of patients. Yeah. The next question is from uh, Cecilia Darín in Argentina. Um, and she comes uh, pretty direct uh, asking you, uh, you know, you mentioned several randomized studies, I believe in uh, C-section and another in lower limb surgery that showed no difference. Should we then take as a take-home message that there is absolutely no benefit to the use of negative pressure wound therapy, or is there any place at all in surgery for the use of this therapy? Yeah, I think that for a, on a closed laparotomy wound, there is no role for it, uh, for this. I think this is not the, this is not what's going to help uh, us prevent uh, wound complications in our patients of any type. Um, I, there is a role, obviously, for wound back for negative pressure systems for disrupted uh, wounds. I think if you have to open a wound, it's much nicer uh, and uh, it actually heals faster based on those trials if you use a negative pressure system. Uh, also, the pain sometimes seems to be a little less because you're not changing the wound every day. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a role there. I, it also can be useful for, obviously, burns. I don't take care of burn patients, but I think that they use that there also. Our colorectal surgeons have used negative pressure wound therapy for rectal uh, anastomotic leaks sometimes, <laughs> uh, amazingly. So... So I think there's a role for it in surgery as a whole, but specifically to a, a laparotomy that you close, there really is no role in my mind after doing this trial and reading the other recent randomized trials that basically have the same rate of surgical site infection rates actually mm -hmm. that we had. Yeah. Um, so this uh, question specifically is going back to the uh, morbidly obese patients this is from Eric Estrada in Guatemala. Uh, he says, you mentioned that a major limitation of your study was that there were only 32 patients who were morbidly obese. Do you consider that we should go at it again uh, with another study, but just in this patient population? Uh, honestly, uh, not that enthusiastic about doing that. As you can see, out of the Wow, how many patients didn't enroll? Ultimately, 600 or so, you know, only 32 were morbidly obese undergoing laparotomy. I mean, the morbidly obese who undergo laparotomy, at least for in our GYN oncology world, that number is becoming smaller and smaller. It would take a very long time to address that question. Mm -hmm. I think if I had found a, a, a trend or, or some, uh, you know, numbers differences, absolute number differences in, that, in our subgroup, 
um, I would say yes. So if let's say in our subgroup, you know, we had, you know, 47% with uh, the gauze only, and it was only 20% in the, in the negative pressure wound group mm-hmm. of that, the small subgroup, I would say, yeah, there seems to be that there might be a benefit there, but we actually had the reverse. We had a higher rate of SS of wound complications in the negative pressure group compared to the gauze only. So I really don't feel we should waste resources on this, and it's time to just look for something different. Very well. And uh, Mario, this uh, this question actually came from several fellows, uh, and given the opportunity of speaking with you, they asked, uh, what do you recommend um, to prevent wound complications in your obese and even the non-obese patients? Yeah, I guess this has a kind of joking, but I would recommend trying to do minimally invasive surgery as much as you can <laughs> for the appropriate indications of course, Pedro, as you know. So mm-hmm. I think that that those surgical site infection rates are the lowest there. So having said that, though, if they require laparotomy or C-sections, obviously you can't do that with minimally invasive surgery. Um, you know, I think, you know, it's hard. I mean, someone who's uh, healthy and thin, their rate of complications seems to be the same. Um as someone who's thin and not as healthy, but uh, in the more obese patients, a struggle. Um, so, obviously, trying to, if you can, hold off till they lose weight, which is really just something we say, but I don't think we ever practically can do that because the, the time ticket to lose that much weight in somebody has a cancer is, is a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's possible, you know, have patients who are mobile obese undergo bariatric surgery, and we've done that before for endometrial cancer patients who need a laparotomy. What we've done here in the past for at least the morbid obese patients, if they require laparotomy, we strongly consider doing paniculectomy at the same time. Mm-hmm. Our retrospective stuff from years ago show that before we were doing more more MIS in these in this group of patients, that the rate of wound complications was lower than if you had done a straight laparotomy without paniculectomy. So here in patients who are truly morbid obese, we also have a large panis because obesity it's just a number and distribution of fat is very different, right? So mm-hmm. if someone has a large panis, we do, and they need a, we need to do a laparotomy, then we would routinely consider a paniculectomy. I think for other folks, you know, you know, having them, you know, if they're smokers, have them quit smoking. Uh, that's been shown at least for pulmonary complications, and hopefully if you can just make them healthier overall. If they're diabetics, you know, uh, having good glycemic control with the, with the normal A1C would be ideal. Um we do obviously uh, believe that surgical site infection bundles have reduced uh, these complications. So we would also strongly recommend that folks implement these bundles. Of course, there's so many things in a bundle. We don't know what actually is ha- helping, <laughs> but that's how it is. So, you know, so what we do here and still by what we do here, we still had about in a non-obese patient, a 15% wound complication rate. You know, we do here is... Um, you know, we give them the preoperative antibiotics like everyone does. We um, um, we then do have a closing tray at the end. Um, so we'll see. There's a few other things that are out there that we want to look into. There's a this question about these uh, antibiotic coated sutures. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the triclosan coated sutures that are out there. There's some interesting stuff on that. We're looking to see if there's something we can do there in a randomized fashion. There's other products that you can just put over the wound with a, a sort of a skin bonding uh, material. Um, and it's also antibiotic coated. So um, there's a lot of things out there, uh, all been poorly assessed, that we can do in addition to our surgical site infection bundles. But really, I think just optimizing patients from a health standpoint, um, if they're not obese and those who are obese, weight loss would be great, but not always possible. And we do consider paniculectomy for those patients. 
Yeah, and um, as you mentioned, the, the uh, surgical site. Uh, infection reduction bundles are very important. And uh, for those in the audience who are interested, um, uh, your manuscript provides several references uh, to that. Um, so certainly encourage those to, to look them up in there as well. And um, one, one um, question that came from Natalia Rodriguez in Spain, she mentions, and, and you mentioned, alluded to as well, the use of uh, preoperative uh, prophylactic antibiotics. And I presume in, uh, in this trial, um, there was a consistent regimen that, that was given? So, yeah, at our institution, so we did this, even though it says different institutions, we have what's called the MSKCC Alliance, Alliance Centers. Mm -hmm. They're not really MSKCC, but they align with us uh, in terms of uh, how things are done for both cancer care and perioperative care. So we didn't specify it, but it's routine that everyone gets some sort of indicated uh, uh, dose of IV antibiotics uh, within 60 minutes of wound, uh, wound uh, incision, skin incision. Okay. So then our last question, Mario, uh, I know you have to go to clinic. Um, so um, obviously very important every time we do these trials, does it change practice in, in your center? You, you have mentioned that several of your colleagues were very excited about the use of this uh, technology. So this last question is from Emma Allison, and she says, have the findings of this trial changed clinical practice in your group? It sure did. No one's putting them on anymore. So at least for the GYN oncology service, I think our colorectal surgeons still use something, but they don't really close the wound. They kind of do intermittent staples and put wicks in between. To me, that's leaving the wound open. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, but for... Yeah, we've all no one no we no longer use this uh, for closed laparotomy incisions. Exactly. Well, great, Mario. Thank you so much once again. Congratulations on uh, completing uh, the trial. Any uh, prospective randomized trial, I know, it takes a lot of time, effort, uh, resources. So, congratulations to you and your group and the hospitals and the alliances for uh, for participating. And uh, as always, a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you once again for um, uh, always uh, uh, saying yes to our invitation. Anytime. Thank you. Have a great day, bud.